Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Cherie Bridges-Patrick. She is the founder of Paradox Cross-Cultural Consulting, Training, and Empowerment, LLC. She is a racial justice consultant, leadership coach, and psychotherapist. She works with social workers, counseling professionals, educators, and organizational leaders, and she integrates her trauma-focused expertise into her work to build relational, resource, dialogic, and leadership capacity for racial justice. Cherie holds a PhD in leadership and change, and her research focuses on racism, denial, and racial justice in social work practice. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. I'm Lindsay Lyons, and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality, and sustain an inclusive, anti-racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant, and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this incredibly exciting conversation that I am about to have with Dr. Cherie Bridges-Patrick. Her and I graduated from the same Leadership and Change PhD program, and I am so excited for you to hear what she has to say today. So Cherie, do you want to just give a few words about who you are and what you do so our listeners know what you're all about? Yes, thank you so much, Lindsay. Yes, we had the honor, I had the honor and pleasure of, of going through the PhD process with this amazing woman. Um, she was moving so fast, there's still the smoke that I see from, from her, her work. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm, a, um, I'm a clinical social worker by training and I focus a lot on trauma. Um, I'm also a racial justice a leadership consultant a leadership coach, and uh, like I said, a psychotherapist. I work with um, counseling professionals and educators and organizational leaders um, around issues of this big concept of racial justice. Uh, I have a consulting practice called Paradox Cross-Cultural Consulting, Training and Empowerment, um, and that consulting practice uses the research that I um, did while I was in the Antioch um, leadership program. Thank you, Sherry. I am so curious. A lot of our listeners really like to think big and work towards truly transformative change. And I know in our work, we've talked a lot about, you know, the need to truly transform and not just make small changes to systems that are really designed to be uh, racist and uphold white supremacy in in. in how they enact practices. School is one of those examples. Of course, there are many across our society. But I'm curious, we both I know have talked about Bettina Love's amazing book. And in it, she really talks about the idea of freedom dreaming, which she describes as, quote, dreams grounded in the critique of injustice, end mm. quote. And so I'm curious what your big dream is for the field of education or helping professions more broadly. Part, part of my dream um, 
I, I'm engaging in because I think my, my personal dream connects to my larger professional dream. And so my, my personal dream is to just live into um, this liberation where I can, you know, um, just be free from the constraints of oppression of all types, right? And to really live into who I, um, who, who I can be, right? So thinking big there and, and not being restricted by who people tell me I should be or who even I think I can be, but to really, you know, um, have this, this space to, to just really imagine and live into that. So from a personal standpoint, um, that's, that's what I imagine. But then I take that into um, this, the um, educational leadership um, well, and leadership and then into um, the helping professions. So social workers, counselors, um, uh, educators, and to really help um, those professions transform themselves um, by being able to get into the hard inner work of racial justice. And there is so much that is entailed with that. Um, so to, to, to work closely with leaders, to guide them through processes so that they can then have the skills to have generative conversations about race, to make change, to see how white supremacy operates, um, and, and then to truly make change, to transform um, systems, to transform the educational system into one that really is about education and learning and liberatory learning, right? So that, we, so that students of all ages, of all ethnicities, of all races, genders, uh, everything can live into their fullest potential. That is an amazing dream. I love exactly how you describe that. And I love as well that you, you're getting into some mindset shifts here too about what is really required for us to one, examine the system, really diagnose the system, and then also really dream big about what is possible with the system that might not come to mind for people who are just in it every day and this is the way we do things. Um, so I'm curious about the mindset shifts and what you would say is kind of a requirement for doing this work, something that maybe doesn't come naturally to our minds when we're just in it every day. What do we need to step back and understand? Wow, there's, there's so much there. Um, well, one, one of the things, I guess I would start with, with the imagination, right? To, to shift from a mindset of scarcity and complacency and fear to one of unlimited imagination, right? So when we can, when we can open ourselves up to, you know, <laughs> to, to accept what we see as beyond possible, right? So to really open ourselves up to imagination. Um, so that would be one thing. And, and, and so I've been writing this article um, on white supremacy and social work, and I was looking at vulnerability, you know, this, this concept of vulnerability, which uh, is, is uh, defined as like open to attack. Um, and so uh, I, was, I used Brene Brown's work, and what she says is that um, vulnerability is like this doorway to the imagination, right? And so that's, that's a, a, a huge step into um, shifting minds is just having the ability to be vulnerable, which means to be seen, to be seen fully, right, completely, and to stop hiding behind shame and all this other stuff that um, keeps us from, um, from change. 
um, you know, when we talk about adaptive leadership, one of the biggest <laughs> uh, reasons that leadership uh, of leadership failure is that we try to meet um, adaptive change with technical fixes, right? And so technical fixes are, are those that, that come naturally, that have plans and, and, and policies around them. For example, a heart surgeon, right? There's a, a technical process that that heart surgeon uh, takes when, when, they, when they're operating, right? It is difficult. I could never be a heart surgeon, but there are procedures, there are processes you know, from start to finish that guide that, um, that surgeon through the process. On the other hand, when we're talking about racial justice, we have to obviously look at racial injustice and what all that brings. And so underneath the umbrella of racial injustice is white supremacy, is whiteness, is racism, is, is you know, all these, all these things that cause all this confusion. And yet we keep trying to navigate um, racial justice, issues of racial justice with a technical fix. And so we have to begin then to look at the, the mind shifts that are required. So that, that, that mind shift in terms of, of technical versus adaptive is, okay, so let's, let's not look at this as something that we know, we don't know what we're doing. Because if we did, we, you know, we perhaps would be a little bit further along this, this process. Um, so that's one argument there. Um, and so it, it just requires a complete mind shift. It requires leaders to be able to interrogate their beliefs, right? To critically examine the disconnects between what we say we value and what we actually value, what we live out in our practices and our policies and our assessments. Um, the, other, <laughs> the other mind shift, so there's lots of them, right? So sorry, you shouldn't ask me this. Um, is, is the illusion of the broken system. I told you I was, I was doing this article on white supremacy. And you know, it was like we keep we keep approaching dismantling white supremacy. Um, we keep approaching that system as being broken. It's not broken. It's functioning as it was set up to function, and it stays uh, in operation because there are there, there are people powerful enough with enough leverage to keep it going. So um, um, changing our, our, our minds about how we see systems. Systems operate the way they were designed to operate. They operate the way they do because people are making, you know, people, um, the decisions that we make on a day-to-day -day basis are actually contributing to their continuation. Amazing. There are so many things here that are just, it, this is such a complex problem, right? I've heard you say that so many times. There's so much complexity here. And so we have to do so many of those things, interrogating our own beliefs to really tackle this challenge. And so one of the things that really resonated as you were talking for me was in the education world, how we a lot of times just jump to PD or like, you know, workshops, professional development sessions where that's going to fix the problem. So we just have this one-off PD about racial justice and now we're good and we're an anti-racist school and the problem is fixed. And it's obviously not fixed when we do that. And so I think you're speaking to this longer work or I've heard you call it labor, right? Laboring for racial justice. That is much more than sitting in a PD for two hours one day. And so I'm interested in kind of the work that you have been doing, the research that you've been doing that speaks to the way in which educators can build capacity 
to engage in that generative discourse that you mentioned. And so is it, is it possible for you to just say a little bit about um, kind of one, the, the importance of discourse in this work and why that's really a place that, that we can go to, to take action, but then also what are the capacities that individuals need to have to engage generatively in dialogue about race and racism? So I, I love it when you ask about discourse, because the more I explore discourse, the more powerful it becomes and the more, I mean, I just, I get these deeper insights about how it operates and, it, and how it's so common, so ubiquitous, so natural for us. So discourse, text, talk, images, writing, you know, so books, uh, uh, social um, network, uh, the news, pictures, um, all these things are, are, are forms of discourse. And so discourse then has a symbiotic relationship, this close relationship to the thing, to the object that, that it, it is, is in alignment with. So, so then when we talk about race, race shapes people, race, race creates people, race you know, renders people invaluable, race makes people superior, right? So it, it, discourse does all these things. And so it's this universal practice, right? It's a universal practice. And without discourse, then we wouldn't be able to function, right? And so that is the power of discourse, um, or that's the, the presence of discourse. Then, then as a universal um, social practice, <laughs> it simultaneously contributes to the development and maintenance of challenges, right? It serves as a tool to examine those challenges, and it can also become the intervention to solve those problems, right? So discourse does all this. So discourse can create good stuff too. But so in, in, in the context of, of racial justice, we're talking about uh, the system of white supremacy. It's all about discourse, right? There's all these other things, but discourse is a huge part of it. And so since it's been created with discourse, we can use discourse, we can use the words, we can use the way the words are used, we can look underneath the words to really begin to understand how it's operating to, um, to continue um, uh, racial injustice. And I kind of like forgot your question. I got, off, I got you know, excited about talking about discourse. That was great. My next piece was just, what are the capacities for individuals to kind of have that discourse in a way that's generative? Okay, so um, in, my, in my research uh, title, Navigating the Silences, Racial Discourse Between Social Workers, I looked at how, you know, racism has been denied primarily. Um, and I, I, in doing that, I had a focus group. Um, and in that focus group of six people, including myself, we talked about um, racism and, and how, how social workers talk about race and racism between one another, with one another. So in that focus group, um, what was surprising was um, the, the, the data from the focus group um, presented these four discourse capacities. Um, because what I ended up looking at was this, the ability of this group to come together, to cohere together, to have a, a generative uh, a dialogue about race. And so from that focus group, rather than, you know, finding this, this other stuff I was looking for, 
these capacities emerged. So there's four capacities. There's this positive, um, liberating dialogic environment. Um, there is adaptability, there's vulnerability, and then there is, um, and of course, I'm not going to remember the other one right now, but I'll kind of, I'll get back to that. So I'll start with the generative, uh, the generative um, dialogic environment. What, what this means is that a dialogic environment is any space and you know we can uh, we can really play with it that space can be my mind my thoughts right but if we're talking about you know uh, uh, dialogue between people that space then becomes the coffee shop that space becomes a classroom that space becomes the day-to-day uh, conversations like at the water cooler. We're not having water cooler conversations anymore, many of us, um, but we are still having these conversations. So informal conversations then um, are, are, are the dialogic spaces. So that, that means that we, we have to um, have the capacity to, to um, allow for conversations to happen. And, and we know already that having um, conversations about race is like People are grappling with that. People, you know, just the thought in my research, the thought of race, the word, when the, when the word race was introduced, it engendered all kinds of emotional responses, particularly with, with white participants. And so we know the power and we know the energy and we know the negativity. Um, and and, and um, we know that we can see that race is conflated with violence. And so you know, when people talk about race, we just automatically jump to violence. So all these things are happening when, when we talk about talking about race. So that dialogic environment then is this space where generative conversations can happen. And, and it takes, you know, if, if, if for instance, it's a classroom, that classroom, uh, that facilitator, that teacher, that instructor, needs to have some foundation, some grounding, some understanding, one, of how race really operates, right? Um, and an ability to, to, to negotiate conversations, to negotiate the, the challenges, the emotional, um, uh, the emotions that come up, um, the responses that come up, so that people can, um, can you know, have, have these conversations. Um, I think one of the biggest things about the dialogic environment is um, the, this notion of dignity, which um, is um, this inherent value, right? It's, it's an inherent value. It comes naturally. It is mine when I'm born. I don't get it um, from you. It is, it is just something that I am I'm born with. And the, the, the challenge with, with centering dignity is that when we talk about race, when we talk about any system here in the U.S., we're talking about a hierarchy, right? And so how do you, how do you value people inherently when we place their value on what they do, right? So it's, it's really seeing the humanity of, of individuals um, at, at, and honoring that. We don't even have to like the person, but we still have to honor the fact that they are worthy of you know of being uh, of being treated with, with dignity so that's a big piece there so then in essence the dialogic space is that space that allows for uh people to make mistakes um for for <laughs> for people to you know to encounter white fragility as as uh you know what was uh, presented in, in my, my research 
but also to grapple with it, right? Not for anybody to be saved from that, but, but for a space where people can grapple with these feelings and, and notice the emotions, notice the sensations, notice what's happening in one's body when they're talking about it. And every time you can have a successful conversation, the success doesn't mean that there's no, you know, emotion or no cursing or whatever. It means that you get through and at the end of that conversation, people leave that conversation with their dignity intact. And there's been some progress. You've had a, a, a you know, a, a joining of people together to talk about this, um, this crazy thing. Um, adaptability is, um, is grounded in in the research of adaptive leadership, Heifetz, Grashow, and Linsky. And it's really about having this flexibility. I already talked about um, you know, the technical versus um, adaptive approach. And so it just, it takes that frame into context. It's really about understanding the structures of, of racism and how they, um, how white supremacy is, you know, is just integrated into the system. And so, um, having a process that allows for people to, to see that. Um, and then there's vulnerability. I talked about that earlier. And vulnerability is open to attack, as I said. Um, so being in a space where one can be seen, where everyone can be seen. So that means that when I talk about the experience that I had um, and, and someone, you know, wants to take offense or they feel something rising up within them. Um, one, I can say that, right, because I'm saying it, you know, in the context of trying to heal, of trying to change systems, that people understand that they have a responsibility to themselves and to the group to check their own selves first, to check their bodies, right? So, so that vulnerability is, is a building up of, of muscle, to allow oneself to move beyond the shame and to let themselves be seen. And, and then um, finally, readiness and willingness. Um, and then I, actually that's like one of the, one of the biggest ones. And, and readiness and willingness then is really a process, an ongoing process um, that, that has these two components. Willingness is like, I want to do this work. I know that it's gonna be really hard. This is gonna kick my butt. I'm gonna wanna run. I'm gonna want to you know, scream. I'm gonna wanna quit. Um, so willingness is, speaks to that. I'm in this, right? And in, within willingness is the necessity, within willingness and readiness is the necessity to formulate a why, to understand why am I doing this? Because a lot of times, you know, folks want to look good, you know, and they want to present this image of goodness and, and racial equality and racial understanding. But deep down, that, you know, that doesn't always, uh, uh, <laughs> that, that <laughs> it doesn't always get, get seen and, and, and we don't uh, typically carry it through that way. And so um, understanding that why, that why is the anchor that will ground um, the individual when stuff gets bad, right? So it has to be anchored in something deep. It's not because, you know, it's my job. It's because I have this commitment to myself to live into my, you know, to my liberation, right? And so then when it's connected to that, when I get, when I get frustrated, when I get, you know, tired, I can, I can grab onto that anchor. That anchor holds me in the game. I can step away and take a break, but I always know that I'm going to come back to it. So that's a willingness and the why underneath it. The readiness is this constant uh, state of, of 
you know, it's lifelong learning, right? So it's, it's reading, it's engaging, it's, 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 um, um, it's the labor of, you know, um, taking books and resources and, and then, you know, working with other people, working with a coach or a, a group that, um, that holds you accountable um, to, to what you're attempting to do. Racial justice is no joke. I mean, as you can see, uh, if we, you know, if we look at the social context, it is, it is, um, it's very difficult work. And so that readiness is a constant preparedness, a constant um, a, a process of, of learning. And so then in that learning, one is learning about this themselves, their identity. Um, one of the big pieces that I'm exploring is um, really getting to parts that need healing. Resma Menicum talks about racialized trauma and how that impacts just our conversations. Um, and and what, we're, what we're learning about trauma is that it, it's not only cognitive, it is somatic. That means it's in the body. So when we're talking about racialized trauma, what we have to understand is that we've all been impacted by racialized trauma. So it's not just black, brown, and indigenous bodies you know, that, that have been harmed. Yes, of course, we have been harmed. Um, however, you know, trauma is what trauma does. And so, you know, <laughs> white bodies too have been um, impacted. And so what we're doing when we come together is that, that trauma is responding to each other. And so when we can start to heal, when we can recognize uh, those, those wordless stories that come up in our bodies, right, we can, uh, again, build that capacity to sit through the discomfort right, to know that this too shall pass. And if you, and, and each time you, you, you can sit through the discomfort long enough for it to pass, right, then you're building capacity. Um, and so that, that is, um, that trauma is a huge part of the, the ready, readiness and willingness. And, I, and I, I know that I mentioned accountability, but I, I want to iterate um, the importance of having accountability. And it's not accountability from a friend or somebody who's you know, gonna let you slide. It's accountability who's, who, from someone who is committed uh, just as much as you are to your own growth. And so that means that person's going to challenge you. That person's gonna ask questions. That person's gonna help you explore and to bring insight. They're gonna hold up a mirror to what you're doing so that um, you, can, you can see what's going on. Right, race oftentimes because of the way it operates, because of the way it operates in discourse, it, we, we, there's a lot of stuff we don't see because it's so natural. And so that that accountability person would be able to really, you know, hold up that mirror and to to say, stop. Here's some things you need to look at, and then help guide you through the process, knowing where to go to get uh, the resources that are needed. There is so much <laughs> that I know you could talk for days about, and I encourage people who are listening to check out Cherie's research and her dissertation is publicly available. You can, you can read more about that, but there are so many things as I was reading through your research and your thesis just of, of quotes that came up in the focus groups where you really highlight these things in action that I immediately was like, yep, I have seen that. I have been there. I have, I have felt that, you know, whatever it was, it feels so tangible. And, and just for anyone listening who is interested in just like powerful writing, Sheree is a brilliant writer. And it is so like, you wouldn't think that reading a dissertation would be fun. And I truly enjoyed reading it. I am not lying. Um, so I do recommend people check that out. There's also four blog posts that Sheree has contributed to the Time for Teachership blog that goes in, in a little bit more depth. Um, and I also 
I, I wanted to speak to one thing that Sheree, that you speak about that I have never heard anyone else say. This is, I think, something that is that is really unique in, in helping uh, me to understand a little bit more about me as a white woman engaging in the labor for racial justice. Um, and that is, you started to say a little bit that that idea of two sides of, of the coin, that idea that um, I think you've said before, right, you can't do this work for me kind of concept. Mm-hmm. Like it absolutely harms white folks as well. And that's not something that we hear a lot. I just didn't know if you wanted to say anything else about that. I've heard you refer to it as soul harm, which I, mm. I find just amazing, um, amazingly powerful in its opportunity for us to shift our minds and get our minds kind of wrapped around this thing that is so complex. And, and so I just wanted to give you an opportunity to share a little bit more if you wanted. Thank you for bringing that up because like that is part of the foundation um, uh, of understanding. Um, and I think it is a place where white people can enter into this, this story of race uh, in which we are all engaged, whether we want to admit it or not, we're all complicit. Lilla Watson, a, an indigenous um, activist and scholar um, has, uh, she, she makes this statement, if, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And to me, that captures what, what you know, you're, you're bringing up, Lindsay, is that um, race doesn't, racism does not happen by itself, right? It's a system that is generated by um, policies, but those policies are generated by people who create the discourse to, to you know, to, to keep racism going. And so um, when, 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 we, when we situate uh, people who are not white as the only ones who have race, then we miss out on the harm that is done to white bodies. Because when, you know, if you look at the relationship of racism uh, and, and, you know, if we get down into the traumatic part of racism, um, you know, to inflict pain on another body is trauma, right? So that the oppressor is traumatized. And this is not to, to let um, white folks off the hook. It is to recognize that we all need to heal, right? And, and, and we're all in this. Um, and so it is really important that white folks begin to look at how how um, turning away from, right? I've had, you know, some white people say after, after, you know, the George Floyd incident, which was preceded by, you know, hundreds and hundreds of other stories, you know, like, I didn't know it was this bad. Well, okay, you need to ask yourself a question, right? Um, you know, how, how is it that you have remained innocent, remained unknowing about these experiences? And so that, that looking away, that willful avoidance, um, that denial of, of racism has cost white people a lot. And, and I see it, and I'm, I'm you know, starting to explore it, I see it as this moral injury, this soul harm that allows white bodies, that moves white bodies into silence, for example, in a meeting, in the face of they're watching a colleague you know, being uh, uh, discriminated against or, or talked down to, right, or excluded from a conversation. You're watching people that you claim to care for, but you can turn away from that consistently, right? And so you have to ask, what, what happens to one's soul when one can turn away from the big things and the everyday little things 
um, and, and I say this particularly to those who are, you know, who claim to, to want to fight for racial justice, right? That means you have to look at, at the complicity, right? And, um, and who, at whose expense does your gain come from, right? And I, you know, and that leads us to, you know, maybe talk about privilege. Um, I see it as advantage, right? It's this, it's this Ill, illegitimate advantage that's just given by the color of one's skin, right? And so it's illegitimate. It's cheating. It's like, so, so to, to gain that advantage, to be given that advantage, at whose expense and at what cost? You know, we have to start interrogating, you know, what is the impact on me when I claim to be one who cares for this, Right? So I'm not talking about those people who are, you know, who, who, are, who are not engaged in this, who are not making these claims. I'm talking to social workers who have this commitment, to educators who, and I don't know what your ethical commitment is, but social workers have an ethical commitment to, to um, fighting all forms of injustice. And so it's, it's really important to know that nobody escapes the harm. We are just differentially impacted the harm to black and brown and, and, and indigenous and other bodies is very clear, right? It's obvious. And then there's the, the invisible wounding, um, but there's, there's harm, the psychic harm to, to white folks that just, you know, continues to contribute to um, the cycling through of, of uh, racism. Thank you so much for elaborating on that, Sheree. I just think that's something that is so unique to how you see things and what you can bring to the conversation when we're engaging in this work and maybe going to a lot of different places. And this is just something that I think is, is transformative in its potential to internalize. And again, like you were saying, to have that deep why. So that deep why is rooted, uh, you know, for me as a white woman in living out my values, right? In not in not really, um, in not contributing to the problem, but also not going against in those tiny moments, right, that may seem easy to turn away um, what I'm purporting to value. And so I, I appreciate that you explained it in that way and gave those examples that I think a lot of listeners can relate to as being in that situation on, on one end or another. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the aspect of denial that you brought up too when you were talking about that. And I know that's a big piece of, of your writing and the things that you um, are, are exploring right now in your scholarship. And so, of course, you brought up earlier Heifetz, Grashow, and Linsky and talking about, you know, that requirement to tackle an adaptive challenge requiring the changes in people's priorities, beliefs, habits, their loyalties. And this is, of course, challenging for people. Um, and I, I'm interested in kind of those related ideas of denial in discourse and also the related notion, I think, of seeing resistance as loss. And so these ideas of denial and resistance as loss are, I know, things you've been writing on. Do you mind saying a little bit about um, those concepts and, and why it's important for us to understand these concepts if we're going to be doing this work? Wow. Okay. Um... So this, this notion of denial, you know, Abram Kendi talks about, you know, um, denial is at the heart of racism. Um, Van Dyke talks about uh, discourse is at the heart of racism. So you've got these two things that are working together. And so the denial really is the ways in which we have just turned away from this reality of, of race and racism but also it gets really convoluted because when, when we understand um, this, this construction of race, 
right? Uh, Menachem talks about it being a, a construct, a social construct with teeth, right? It's a fabrication, right? So all this stuff around race is being, is being done, is, is being lived out. It is a, a real experience based on a false notion. Just my, it's baffling. All right, so, uh, um, so then in, in terms of denial, there are just hundreds of ways um, in which we deny racism. We deny, um, I mean, my research spoke specifically to how um, we deny uh, access to conversations of race, or we actually just deny that racism is a problem in a variety of ways. And so there were um, three denial discourses that came out of, of my research. You know, one was this notion of, of comfort and discomfort for white people. Another was fear and danger. And then the, the other was just the silence, right? And so, you know, the silence operates, you know, in meetings and team meetings when, you know, when you have a client, we don't even talk about race right, in, in, our, in our team meetings, for example, um, or if we do, we keep it at this demographic safe level, right, so then we become colorblind to the impact of, of race and racism. So, um, you know, just, just negating bringing it up at all or staying in that safe zone of, of demographically, you know, uh, describing it. Um, so that, that, that was one example of, of the discourse of silence, which is a form of denial. Right, so then there are this, these other um, discourses that emerge, this notion of comfort, white comfort, right? And it's grounded in silence, it's grounded in safety, it's grounded in image, right? So white people do not like to be called racist. That's like the worst, one of the worst things, you know, that, that a white person can be called, except I think that, you know, we've, we've again conflated race with violence. And so then when you talk about being a racist, you know, one seems, you sees that as being called this violent, you know, um, white nationalists or a member of the case. And that's not the case. My, my research looked at how um, racism is continued, is reproduced, is, is maintained without intent, right? And that's the power of discourse. Um, and so um, the, the, the notion of remaining in comfort was, was huge. Um, and it was a yet another way to deny um, conversations about race. I had a supervisor say that, you know, I don't bring up race in group sessions because it's more comfortable for me to, 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 you know, talk about race one-on-one -on -one with people, right? So the white supervisor determining that for, for him, it was more, you know, convenient, it was more comfortable, he said, um, for, for me to talk about race one-on-one. -on -one. So then what happens to all the clients? What happens to all the other employees that need to, the other team members who need to hear that story of, you know, that, that issue around race? So there's a lot of things that happen. So in that moment, um, the, the opportunity, the access to have a conversation was denied. And then there's this fear and, and this, this discourse of fear and danger. And I, and I, you know, just talked about how race is conflated with violence. And that's really what that was about. You had white folks who were not able to or did not provide evidence of the harm that they feared, right? So there was this perception of fear because of the ways that, you know, race and racism operate. So these, these, this fear, unsubstantiated, um, where black and, and biracial um, uh, participants talked about the harm that actually comes to them, right? And so, and it comes to them, the fear um, is that if I say something, 
you know, um, the whole team is going to discount me, you know, as a, as a good member of the team because I make them uncomfortable, right? So imagine that if I, if I bring up race, I'm going to be discounted. I'm going to be, you know, uh, excluded from, from uh, groups and so, or conversations. And so that, that fear is grounded for, for black and, and biracial social workers was grounded in agency, right? Being able to, you know, to hold a job, hold a profession and maintain, you know, some, some integrity and some, some uh, professional standing on the job, right? So you have these two different stories, one that's perceived, you know, as, as threat, um, and then there's this real threat um, and they collide, right? So um, that's, that's denial. I also did a, a deeper um, exploration of denial and how it, it uh, operates sociocognitively. And, um, and so I looked at discourse structures of three social workers and um, one, one of them, and I, I won't go into it too much, but it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, because it was this conversation um, with a social worker a, who was a, a leader in her organization, a white uh, young leader, um, who, you know, just talked about how she had she had had become aware of how racism operated, and she had been taught to be colorblind. So she was really struggling. So this is part of part of the harm that happens to white people. This you know this this realization of oh my goodness, things are really bad and where have I been? I've been taught this way. So she was struggling with the fact that she'd been taught colorblindness and taught everybody loves everybody and everybody's equal. But now it's becoming very obvious that that's not true. So she's grappling with her own identity and, and her own um, issues of how she's been raised and how her, her, she's been you know, socialized to think a certain way about race and about herself. And, and she's also recognizing and making statements about how she's seeing racism operate in her organization. She uses an example of, hey, um, you know, I was, I was this young person, I came in and I worked in an office of predominantly, it was a predominantly African-American office, right? So I came in as a leader and I watched myself be promoted over, over these black you know, uh, colleagues um, and I knew they were more qualified than me, is what she said, right? I knew they were more qualified than me and I got promoted anyway and she took the job anyway, right? And so she's grappling with that guilt and that like, I don't, what's, what's happening here? So it's like, this is really confronting her. So in the conversation, you know, she's telling me all this um, and then she recognizes, she says, oh, wow. You know, it just occurs to me that as I'm telling you this, I'm calling my company racist, right? And she's like, no, they're not racist. After she just explained that all this racism was going on in her organization, they're not racist. No, they're, they're, they don't know. They're, um, they're, they're, they're ignorant. They just, they don't know what to do. They're trying, you know, all these different excuses. And it was like, you know, I had to read it several times to really understand how deeply um, the wounds of, of, of racism go and how it shapes us to, you know, to just want to turn away from what's really happening. And so she was like, no, they are not racist, right? It was, it was everything else except, and I never called, I never said they were racist. It was her recognition. And so I said, well, you know, that you have to, you know, recognize that we're, you know, we're in the system that, you know, we can't escape it. And she was like, nope, they're not. So I had to end. I had to end that conversation, and or that part of the interview to go on to something else. 
but the denial in, in that um, in that sense was just so fascinating to watch because there's this admittance of I'm watching it happen. I'm watching racism happen in my organization. I am participating in this. And then it was this shift to no, we can't be. And so these are the things that that are part of the inner work of, of racial justice, right? And these are the things that people have to grapple with. And it ain't fun, right? It is very painful. As you can tell, you know, her name, I, I identified her as, as Dawn. You know, Dawn was she just throughout the interview just grappled with this you know, this, this difference in who she thought she was and who she really was. Um, so that's it, that's it for denial. And this, um, the notion of resistance as loss, um, like you said, Heifetz, Grasha, and Lenski talk about that. And, you know, it, it, it hit me, you know, as I was reading through, like all the resistance that we, we see when we bring up race, you know, if we conceptualize it, and I'm not saying this is the only thing, but if we can conceptualize it as loss, it can be loss of identity, right? I no longer have this superior identity, right? And so that's a big one. You know, <laughs> um, that's something that has, you know, has built up over, you know, hundreds of years. And so this identity um, of superiority that is attached to white skin, people have to grapple with it. So when you introduce, you know, you know, um, uh, talking about transformation around, you know, around uh, changing systems um, to, to be racially just, that's a big thing to have to grapple with. And so it's a loss. It's like, who am I going to be if I don't have that? Identity is one. Um, power, position, it just loss um, uh, creates all these things that we have to grapple with. And so when people, when people are confronted with that, they often resist, right? And so rather than seeing it as resistance, if we reframe it, if we just turn the, the, the page just a little bit and, and see it as loss, then as leaders, we're responsible to help people navigate through that loss. It still, you know, it still is resistance, right? But to help them grapple with it so that they can pass through that resistance and that loss so that um, change and transformation can really occur. Thank you so much for explaining all of that for us. There are so many things that we have covered in this, this podcast episode. I just want to kind of recap some of the things that I heard and then Sharif, feel free to jump in and clarify or let me know if I got any of them wrong. And then we'll move to kind of, you know, what can people do moving forward? And so here are the things that, that I think are important for listeners to kind of remember a little highlight reel here. Uh, one, the importance of just opening up our imaginations and that vulnerability is, as you said, a doorway to that imagination, right? Pulling from the work of Brene Brown there, right, to be seen fully and, and enable us to really think big. Um, another piece, right, adaptive versus technical challenges, technical fixes, those PDs, those one-time workshops are not going to cut it when we're talking about a long-standing entrenched problem. And so it really needs to be adaptive work. We need to interrogate those beliefs. We need to recognize the disconnects between our values and actions and our, in terms of school leadership, our policies, right, and our practices of pedagogy. Um, we also need to see the system as operating the way it was designed. It is not a broken system. We need to recognize and call out the ways in which it is operating in a racist way um, so that we can dismantle it. 
Uh, the primacy of discourse, I think, is one of the hallmarks of, of your work, uh, Sheree, and I think that's a huge piece, right? Discourse, as you said, contributes to the problem. It's a tool for examining the problem, and it's also a way that we do the work or the labor we name and dismantle through the discourse that we have with colleagues, with students. Um, and so in educational spaces, this is a huge tool. A lot of times we talk about, you know, how do we have critical dialogue with students and, and things like this. And this, this really feeds into the work that schools might be doing around discourse in, in classrooms, but really highlighting that this is also a way to talk about, identify, and dismantle racism at work in those systems. I think that's a unique perspective, um, you know, in terms of looking at schools and schooling and how we talk about talking with students. Uh, another piece of that too, when we look at those four capacities, we got the liberating dialogic environment where the facilitator, so if we're thinking about a, a group of um, students and a teacher facilitating a class, I'm envisioning uh, that teacher being the facilitator and really having to build up their own capacity and understanding of how race operates, but also really knowing how to center dignity. And so Sheree and I have actually put together a free resource that I will link to this episode where it summarizes the 10 elements of dignity from Donna Hicks's book. Um, and then it also gives a poster for teachers who wanna use it either, it's a digital poster, so in a virtual space or um, a physical classroom space if you wanna print it out, but, but that helps educators really feel out how they might do that or how they might position uh, those elements of dignity as maybe class agreements and, and put it out for conversation among students. Um, the other capacities for discourse of readiness and willingness, of course, connecting that, as you said, to having a deep why and your really adherence to lifelong learning, your commitment to be a learner and learning with accountability as a really important caveat there. Um, and to be vulnerable and um, that adaptability capacity as well being really critical. Another key feature I think of your work is that we are all harmed by white supremacy and racism. There's that soul harm, right? What does it do to the, so do to the souls of the folks who turn away? I think that's a powerful um, way to look at this. And I encourage listeners to really think about that and um, what that means for our engagement in this labor. And finally, the denial. So I think for, for listeners listening, probably recognizing where that denial comes up in themselves and others, how it manifests as silence, how it is a manifestation of comfort or discomfort or fear. And then also for leaders reframing, as you said, resistance as really loss, um, the loss of identities, purity, power, position. Um, there are so many things here <laughs> that you said that are so brilliant. And I just want to make sure everybody captured them as they were listening. I know sometimes people listen to podcasts and multitask. So I want to make sure that they got all those things. Um, I want to first ask, is there anything you would add or clarify to that? And then a second kind of question, what is one thing from that long list of things to remember and take away that someone a listener who is listening right now could just do tomorrow, somewhere they could really begin and get started? Um, so, so, Lindsay, I had to take a deep breath as you were re recapping all this stuff, like, oh, snap, that's a whole lot. Um, and and I, th I think you've done an excellent job of summarizing them. Um, so thank you for that. I, I, so, you know, when people ask, like, what do they do? What can we do? Um, I'm like, oh, my goodness, you should never ask me that question because I am going to challenge listeners to, <laughs> to just take three minutes a day, try it for a week, three minutes a day to... Um, to give intentional focus 
um, to uh, observe themselves uh, from a distance as a third party, observe their discourse, observe their interactions, observe their body language. It can be by themselves, their thoughts, or it can be like uh, in, in, in work spaces or you know, in, in work environments. We're doing a lot of Zoom work. So to, to notice what is, is happening you know, as, as, you, as you go through your day-to-day -day, um, practice of, of just living, right? And so to take three minutes and give intense focus, notice all those things. And don't judge them, just notice them because those things will begin to tell you more about yourself than you might be wanting to learn. I've been doing this practice myself and I am, I'm, you know, I have to admit, um, have been a couple of times appalled at like some of my thoughts, like, oh my gosh, I really thought that ugly thought, right? And so it's to really, um, to, to examine what is happening in our minds and our bodies, right? And it doesn't matter if it's about race, it could be about anything, but just to learn about ourselves so that we can, you know, um, begin to address race. Now, for those of you that are really brave, make it about race, focus on, on what's happening. You know, when you, when you are watching a TV program and you see that black body or that white body come across the screen or whatever, just pay attention and notice what's going on. I promise you, if you do this, you will see some things that then will allow you to begin to, um, to become more vulnerable, right? To, to um, give the things to yourself that you might not be getting, right? Vulnerability is, is also about being true to oneself, right? And, and, and being able to honor oneself. And so just exploring those things that happen to us on a day-to-day -day basis for three minutes. That's how much it will cost you is three minutes, right? So you don't have to go out and get a book. You can, you can buy a book if you want to, um, but this, this you, you don't even have to wait till tomorrow. You can do it right now. I love that, Sheree. Thank you so much for sharing that. And as we move to close, I'm just thinking about you. You're working on so many things all the time. I'm wondering if there's something that you didn't mention that you're you're working on currently, or um, you know, it could even be a book you're reading or, or something that has been on your mind lately um, that you wanted to share with folks. Anything that's been at front of mind for you? <laughs> Okay, there's my, 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 my brain is, like you said, I'm doing a, a lot of different things, so my brain is scattered all over the place. Um, but in, in, in terms of, you know, what's on my mind, obviously I talked about this article for white supremacy, or not for white supremacy, but white supremacy and social work and dismantling it. Um, there is a book, and I think you mentioned it the other day, that I cannot seem to find. It's, um, do you know the is one? It cast by Isabel Wilkerson? Yes, yes. Um, I, I have heard um, from multiple resources that uh, that is a powerful, powerful book. I have not yet begun to engage in it, um, but I would highly recommend, as I will do myself, that people um, read that. Resma Menicum's work on racialized trauma is a must, um, and because there's some offerings of, of resources in there that can help people navigate through these somatic responses that we have. Ibram Kendi's work, um, Adaptive Leadership, James Baldwin, I could go on forever and ever. There's tons of podcasts. Um, there, and and, and there's, there's, there's tons of resources available. What I would say, I would add a caveat to that, is that not all racial justice um, related resources are equal. 
um, if you understand the sinister uh, um, nature of white supremacy is that it operates to reproduce itself, right? And so um, this is why I find discourse so fascinating, so useful, is that um, you know, because white supremacy um, operates to reproduce itself, we'll find it in, in you know, resources that are meant, you know, stated to, you know, to be inclusive, to, to create inclusive environments or to, you know, to focus on diversity um, and equity is, uh, issues. And so um, perhaps um, talking to people who are really knowledgeable about race and racism, you know, reading a book um, is good, but I tell you, after, after studying this for several years, I still know very little about um, how race and racism operate. It is so sinister, white supremacy is so sinister. And so to, you know, <laughs> to know that there are, there are programs out there that are designed, right, to reproduce, right? Not necessarily intentionally, perhaps they are intentional, but at the end of the day, if we keep doing what we always did, we're always gonna get what we always got. It's time to change. It's time to really jump out there and be creative and imaginative and, um, you know, and, and, and take some risks. It's really, it's really risky, but it's, it's, I promise it's worth it. Thank you so much, Sheree. Before we finally close, I'm wondering if you want to share where listeners can learn more about you or connect with you, either a website, um, social media platforms, wherever you would like to direct people to go to engage further. Thank you for saying that, Lindsay. You can go to my website, www.socialchangecoaching.com. Um, and that has a lot of information on the kind of work that I do. Um, I, there's a link to my research there, and so you can see that, you can connect from there. And there's also a few um, blogs that I've written um, that are available on that site. So thanks, Lindsay, for that reminder. Of course, excellent. And I will also link in the show notes to all those great books that you recommended as well, just so people can easily find those and, and don't have to rewind the podcast and, and listen to what we were saying as we were talking. So thank you so much, Sheree. You have shared so much with us today and I totally appreciate your time and your genius and your brilliance and, and thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity, Lindsay. It is awesome to be with you. It's awesome to work with you. Thanks for listening, amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Alliance or leave a review of the show so leaders like you will be more likely to find it. To continue the conversation, you can head over to our Time for Teachership Facebook group and join our community of educational visionaries. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. Thank you.